Let's read together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44. What does the 10th commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? Uh, no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the 10th commandment the Lord says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. Coveting is setting your heart on what belongs to your neighbor. It is wanting something that belongs to another and thinking about how we might make that our own. Coveting is different from all the other things forbidden in the law. When the Lord forbids us to take his name in vain or murder, adultery, or stealing. He tells us about various actions that are wrong, things which displease him. But coveting is not an outward action. It concerns what lives inside us, in our hearts. Coveting is not about doing something wrong. It concerns our inward thoughts, and desires. Wanting and desiring are not wrong in themselves. Now God created us with certain desires. When we're hungry, we want food. When we're lonely, we desire someone to talk with. Wanting and desiring such things is not wrong. Yet our sinful hearts often desire things that belong to someone else. We want what our neighbor has his house, his car, his boat, his wife, his business, his employees, her husband, her good looks, her well-behaved kids, her life. We set our heart on what our neighbor has. That's what coveting is. Wanting and desiring what belongs to another. This is sinful in two ways. Desiring what belongs to our neighbor hurts him or her. 
For when envy and jealousy enter into our hearts, they get in the way of wholesome relationships with those around us. In our jealousy, we might say or do things against our neighbor. We may even try to take what really belongs to him. Desiring what belongs to our neighbor is also offensive against God. Our God is good. He has promised to supply us with everything we need for body and soul. Yet instead of looking to him to satisfy our needs and desires, we set our hearts on things that our neighbor has. When we do that, we show that we doubt the goodness of God, that we don't really trust him to provide everything we need. This afternoon, we'll see how in the 10th commandment, the Lord teaches us about how to live joyous lives in his service. If we seek contentment in filling the desires of our hearts, we're never going to find true happiness. But if our hearts are focused on the Lord, if we seek everything in him, then we'll experience joy. For it's ultimately only in him that we can find rest and security for our souls. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God teaches us not to covet, but to find everything we need in Jesus Christ. We'll see that we are to set our hearts on God. We are to seek the righteousness of Christ. And we are to pray for the grace of the Spirit. This afternoon, we read together the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These events happened at a time when the church of Jesus Christ was being established in Jerusalem. In the church, there was much cause for joy and for celebration. Not only was the Spirit poured forth on the church, he also worked mightily among God's people. Many had come to faith, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Yet the early church faced struggles. They were persecuted by the Jewish leaders. The result was that there were members who were in great need. It's beautiful to see how the church responded to that. Acts 4 says that those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. By his spirit and word, God transformed the hearts of these believers. They served God in sincerity and truth. Their love for Christ their Savior was evident in their caring and sharing with their needy brothers and sisters. Ananias and Sapphira witnessed what was happening in the early church. They decided to sell a piece of property and to donate the proceeds to the church for the care of the needy. Yet they decided to keep back part of the proceeds of the property for themselves. Their sin was not that they didn't give all the proceeds to the church. It was their property. They were free to keep it or to sell it and to give however much they wanted for the support of the needy. Their sin was that they presented their gift as if it were all of what they got from the sale of their property. Well, in fact, they held back part of the proceeds for themselves. 
They were guilty of deceit and of lying. Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie about their gift to the church? Why did they pretend to give all the proceeds of the property? Why did they keep back some of the money for themselves? Their sin was covetousness. They wanted the recognition and the esteem that came from publicly donating the proceeds of their property to the church. They wanted the glory and the honor that others like Barnabas had received. Giving only part of the proceeds of the sale of the property would not look as good as giving it all. But they also wanted some of that money for themselves. The Tenth Commandment forbids coveting. It focuses on what lives in our hearts. The central question that this commandment raises is, on what or on who do you set your heart? What's more important to you than anything else in life? Beloved, if you look at the time you spend and the energy that you devote to different things in life, what's it say about the focus of your heart? Is it on the Lord and on His grace? Or is it on yourself, on your job, your kids, a relationship you're in, or the fun times you'd like to have? Our human tendency is to set our hearts on things below. We tend to get involved in life and to get caught up in the things going on around us. The problem is that it's so easy for us to lose sight of God and of His grace and of how He wants us to live free and joyous lives in His service. When it comes down to it, the real problem we face is that our hearts are by nature sinful. By nature, we're self-focused instead of being God-directed. By nature, we tend to want what our neighbor has instead of being content with what God gives us. Do you recognize this problem in yourself? Can you see that your heart is often self-focused? Do you recognize the covetous desires that live within you? So often we desire someone else's blessings. We look at what someone else has been given and we think, if only I had that, I'd be happy and satisfied and content. Our hearts lost after all kinds of things. Money, property, relationships, physical appearance, positions, athletic abilities, toys, intellect, spiritual gifts. We think having what someone else possesses will satisfy our deepest longings. Here, beloved, we see the deficiency of the human heart. No matter how we've been blessed, there's always something more to desire. You see that in people all the time. Their heart is focused on that one thing that they need in life. People who make their first million are not content. They want to make their next million. People who long for a significant relationship are not satisfied when they get married. Now they need a house and they want to have kids. 
the heart can and will always find something else to desire. Yet as long as our hearts are focused on the here and now, we'll never be satisfied. When our catechism deals with the 10th commandment, it does not focus on the sin of coveting. Question answer 113 asks, what does the 10th commandment require of us? Notice the focus this answer puts on our hearts. It says that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. God calls us to turn our hearts away from sinful desires. He directs us to turn our hearts to him and to his service. Our hearts are often focused on what others have because we think that attaining these things will make us satisfied. They'll make us content. We may be told that money does not buy you happiness, but many people still strive after material riches because they see prosperity as the key to happiness. Our society teaches us to set goals, to keep striving until you accomplish them because then you'll be content. But inevitably, we set new goals. And so we need to keep striving. And we never quite reach that state of contentment. The Bible teaches that contentment does not come from the abundance of a person's possessions, nor in his or her achievements. Contentment is ultimately a state of the heart. It can only be worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It is the fruit of living in close communion with the Lord. This life, beloved, is never going to satisfy the hungering and thirsting of our needy souls. Only God can do that. God created us to live in a relationship with Him. It's in Him. It's only in Him that we can find meaning and purpose in our lives. As much as we try to satisfy ourselves with other things, we can only find true contentment in life, in communion with the Lord. And so, beloved, the tenth commandment, in the Tenth Commandment, God not only commands us to turn away from coveting what belongs to our neighbor, He calls us to set our hearts on Him. Life is to be found in knowing God, in loving Him, in living a relationship with Him. The real hungering and thirsting of our souls is not for anything this world has to offer. Satan will try to convince us that the things of this life can make us happy. Ultimately, they cannot. Only God can. Set your heart on him. Live in close fellowship with him. Then and only then will you find true contentment in life. It brings us to our second point, And it will see that we are to seek the righteousness of Christ. The struggle that we face in life is that although we may want to set our hearts on God, we often fall back into sinful ways. Instead of seeking close communion with the Lord, we focus on the things of this life. And beloved, in many ways, that's natural. We live on this earth. Heaven is not yet our home. Our hearts are inclined by nature to evil, 
rather than to God. But that's often hard for us to admit. We tend to be proud people. We like to think about our accomplishments and our successes. We often think about ourselves as good people. We don't blaspheme God's name. We don't murder or commit adultery or steal. When we compare ourselves to many others who don't know God, we're doing pretty good. Yet the Tenth Commandment doesn't just deal with our words and actions. It deals with our wants and our desires, with what goes on inside of us, with our thoughts and our emotions. It deals with our hearts. What is it that the Tenth Commandment makes plain about our hearts? It makes it clear that by nature, we're deeply sinful people. You may not blaspheme God, but when life doesn't go your way, don't you sometimes hold that against God? You may not murder, but don't you at times get angry with others around you? You may not physically have sex outside of marriage, but don't you have lustful desires? You may not steal, but don't you ever covet what belongs to your neighbor? The Catechism makes the point clearly in question and answer 114. It asks, can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? Our Catechism's answer is blunt. It says, no. It explains that in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. You see the point, beloved? We're not perfect. Can't even say that we're good. We fall far short of the obedience that God expects from us. Daily, we sin. Our thoughts, desires, words, and deeds are often unholy especially the Tenth Commandment, dealing with our wants and our desires, that makes this clear. I want to come back to our reading from Acts 5. It is striking to see the punishment that came upon Ananias and Sapphira for their sin of lying about their gift and coveting the glory and honors, the glory and honor that others received. Acts 5 says that they fell down at the apostles' feet and breathed their last. We often struggle with this, thinking that the punishment is far too severe for their sin. Yet we need to recognize that God struck them down so that they died. So why did God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? We need to recognize that this was a seminal moment in church history. Jesus Christ had just ascended into heaven. New believers were being gathered into the church daily. They lived in joy and in unity together. That joy and unity were the fruit of the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. He directed many believers to God's grace in Jesus Christ. They found forgiveness for their sins in the blood of Jesus. And they were so thankful for this. Their gratitude showed forth in all they said and did. It showed in their worship of God 
It showed in their love and their support of one another. Yet Ananias and Sapphira threatened all this. They presented themselves as pious, sincere, giving Christians. Yet they were hypocrites. Their piety was a put-on. It was a front that really hid what lived in their hearts. Instead of being motivated by the Spirit of God, they were being led by Satan. Satan is the father of all lies and deceit. He directed Ananias and Sapphira to conspire together to keep back part of the proceeds of the sale of their property while pretending to give it all. He led them to lie to the Spirit of God about what they had done. Their action was an affront to our holy God. Their sin threatened the unity between the Lord and his church at Jerusalem. God punished them with death. The fruit of sin is death. We easily forget that. But if you follow sin to its logical conclusion, it can and will only lead to death. God made that clear to the whole church. Please remember that the congregation did not yet have the whole of God's word. In those days, God still augmented his word with signs and wonders done through the apostles. He struck down Ananias and Sapphira as a warning to the whole church. It was a visible demonstration of the fact that sin is worthy of death. God's punishment drew attention. Acts 5.11 says that, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Why does God want to draw our attention to our sins and to the punishment that they deserve? Our catechism deals with this in question and answer 115. It asks, If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? The first part of the answer is, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. One of the purposes of the law is to teach us to know our sins and misery. The Tenth Commandment reveals the depravity of the human heart. All too often our hearts are filled with sinful wants and desires. God wants us to be aware of that. To know how in our thoughts and desires we so often sin against Him. God wants us to know this, not to depress us. He wants us to know this, to drive us to Christ. So we seek our life outside of ourselves in the only Savior. It's because of this that we also read together from Philippians 3. In this chapter, Paul is writing against those who thought that they could merit God's grace and gifts through their own good works. Paul explains that at one time he thought that he too could earn his righteousness before God. Paul shares with the Philippian believers the reason why he at one time put confidence in himself and in his own good works. 
Prior to his conversion, Paul saw himself as a good person. According to the teaching of the Jewish leaders, Paul was a righteous man. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of Hebrew stock. He was a Pharisee who lived strictly according to the law. He was one with such zeal for God that he persecuted the church. If any one of those days passed judgment on Paul, they would say that he was a blameless man who lived according to all God's commands. But Paul had learned that God does not judge according to the standards of man. God did not just look at the outward way in which a person lives his or her life. God looks at the heart. He sees all of a person's hidden faults. God is intimately acquainted with all the sinful thoughts and desires that arise within us. Paul knew God did not look at him favorably. It was revealed to him on the road to Damascus. Paul's intention was to round up the Christians in Damascus to persecute them and kill them. But Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord made it clear to him that he was, uh, he was completely on the wrong track. While thinking he was very zealous for God, Paul was opposing his work by persecuting the church. Paul was convicted of the fact he was not a good person. For the first time of his, in his life, he actually recognized that he was a sinner. And for Paul, this realization was life-transforming. Formerly, he had boasted of his goodness, of his righteousness. But now, Paul chucks all his former so-called accomplishments into the rubbish bin. He says he counted everything he had done as a loss for the sake of Christ. Paul no longer counted on his works for his righteousness. He says that he did not have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. It is Jesus' death for his sins that made Paul right before God. It's his resurrection that assures Paul of his life with God. In Philippians 3, Paul recognizes he has not yet attained this goal of perfection. Yet he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says that forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul has learned to know Jesus as the only Savior. He seeks his life, his well-being in him alone. And beloved, Paul also encourages us in this. He sheds tears over those who have set their minds on earthly things. They're walking on a pathway of destruction. Paul points out that our citizenship is in heaven. He encourages us to eagerly await the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Joy, peace, 
contentment cannot be found in the things this life has to offer. They can only be found in Jesus Christ and in the righteousness he gives to all who believe in him. Beloved, we need to seek our life in Jesus Christ. So often we set our desires on insignificant things. It does us no good to seek after material things or to lust after the pleasures this life has to offer. Jesus asked, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. True contentment can only be found in living in communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It brings us to our final point, and it will see that we are to pray for the grace of the Spirit. The Ten Commandments has made it plain that we cannot keep God's commandments perfectly. It teaches us that of our own accord we will not even seek our righteousness in Christ. And so it encourages us to pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. For He is the only one who can change our hearts, who can renew our desires. We, beloved, cannot change our own hearts and minds. If we were left to ourselves, we'd continue to covet what belongs to our neighbor. Without the indwelling of the Spirit and His renewing work, we'll never learn to be content. That's why the Bible teaches us to pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. It is only by His work in our hearts and lives that we are transformed. The Spirit is the only one who can renew us in God's image once more. How does the Spirit transform us from the inside out? He does it by focusing our attention on Jesus Christ. When your mind is filled with how much God has done for you in Jesus Christ, there isn't time to strive after the vain pleasures this world has to offer. In Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins. God has claimed you as his dearly loved child. You are righteous and holy in his sight. Through the power of the Spirit, you can know God and love and serve him. Why would you give up all that to chase after the stuff this world offers? This life cannot give you true joy or satisfaction. Only Jesus Christ can. Focus your hearts, beloved, on the grace given in Jesus Christ. Out of thankfulness for the wondrous redemption Christ has earned for you, commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him number one in your life. Serve him wholeheartedly. By the power of his spirit, God is renewing us day by day so that we may image Christ in our lives. That's how we glorify God. It's how we live in close communion with him. 
It's the way to live contented and happy lives. Amen.